Hey there, my friends. Welcome to episode nine, where today in 10 minutes, we're going to try to talk about World War II. And World War II is such a huge topic. Like, how can you possibly cover that in 10 minutes? And the truth of the matter is, we're going to cover some aspects of it that maybe you hadn't heard before. Everybody knows about Pearl Harbor. Everybody knows about uh, D-Day and has watched Band of Brothers and has some of the basics down. Hitler was bad. The Allies were good. We won in the end. Everything turned out okay. But there was a lot more to it, of course. It was an absolutely Herculean effort on part of the United States and other countries to fight and to win this war. It ended up costing about 412,000 American lives. Um, and at a time when America had less than 100 million people, that was a huge sacrifice that almost everybody noticed in some way. If it didn't hit a member of your family, it definitely hit the family of somebody that you knew. And this was also a time when pretty much every family contributed in some way. There was at least one family member, one father or brother or uncle or son that was serving in the military, um, usually multiple members. And if you ex extend it in your family and start talking about how many cousins there were, sometimes it could run into dozens. So... America was all in on this war. Everybody participated in one way, shape, or form. And so there's no way to divorce it from our consciousness. Uh, 16 million Americans ended up putting on a uniform in some way, whether they left the country or not, and fighting in either the Pacific or the Atlantic or serving here at home. And that was a huge portion. That was about one person in five and about one third of all the men in the country, which it just, that that's unbelievable. You couldn't imagine what that would look like today, right? And so everybody was in uniform. Everything was militarily oriented, and that included production. So this huge army that we're building and all of our friends, allies' armies, they're all going to need uniforms and bullets and backpacks and bayonets and, and artillery shells and guns and tanks and jeeps and everything that they would need. And so we had to convert all of our factories as quickly as possible to this massive wartime production. Up shows the government and just says, hey, Ford Motor Company, you don't make cars anymore because I said so. Can you imagine them doing that today? How much hue and cry there'd be? So what they end up doing is saying, now instead of building new cars, you're going to build Jeeps and you're going to build Sherman tanks and you're going to build thousands of them and we're going to buy them all. You will make money doing this, but you cannot make cars. And so from 1942 to 1945, you couldn't find a new car in America, which didn't really matter because you didn't have the gasoline to drive it. Everything in America is going to get rationed during this time period. I shouldn't say everything, but a lot. So every average American family, you got ration coupons, which would allow you to buy eight gallons of gasoline a month. When you go to the gas station, you would need these ration coupons in order to buy the gasoline. And so imagine trying to get by today on eight gallons a month for your whole family. And we're talking about 1930s cars that didn't get great mileage. So now you got to be creative. So you didn't make unnecessary trips to the store. You coordinated with your neighbors. You carpooled to work and you walked and biked a lot of places. Or you made one neighborhood grocery trip where you rotated who was going to buy all the groceries this week. They just made it work which is another amazing part in itself. All the recycling programs in America started with World War II, where suddenly we need the raw materials. We can't afford to waste some of these things. Your tin cans, your aluminum cans, uh, even your cooking fat, you're going to be forced to recycle because cooking fat can be refined down into explosives. 
And so there would be this guy in your neighborhood who would come around every week and collect your cooking fat, and you better have it ready for him. And if you didn't, then you weren't helping with the war effort. Unlike today's wars where they're fought by volunteers and you can choose not to be a part of them if you don't want to, and you're not even really taxed to pay for them, it's easy not to even notice they're happening. Whereas back in this time period, you were intimately connected to it in your daily life. President Roosevelt, who's still president, okay, is telling all Americans, we need you to plant victory gardens. We need you all to grow some of your own food because we need the rest of the food to send to our troops overseas. And America takes on this task of fighting a war on two fronts simultaneously against two separate empires. Now, those two wars were very different, of course, but we're talking about millions of human beings, thousands of ships, millions of man-hours, and thousands of planes, everything that was going to be needed in order to fight this. And we're also talking about a lot of diplomatic history. How do we coordinate with our friends and allies on how to fight this war? Well, the war, the leadership of the war came down to the big three, they call it, which was President Roosevelt, Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union, and Winston Churchill of Great Britain. And the big three just had regular meetings. They talked about strategy. They talked about problems. They, they worked out how to, how to help each other out. And it's true that this, this murderous, psychopathic communist, Joseph Stalin, who was in many ways worse than even Hitler, Okay, becomes our ally during the war simply because Germany happened to be our enemy. Politics makes strange bedfellows. And so both Churchill and FDR, who didn't like and did not trust Stalin, find themselves forced to work with him for the common good of defeating Germany and Japan. They met at Casablanca in Africa, where they talked about the, the need to fight Germany first and the need for an unconditional surrender. Okay, they, they met and talked... Uh, at Yalta in 1944 about what post-war Europe would look like. They met at Potsdam in 1945 and talked about uh, um, uh, what Germany would look like when the war was over and who would occupy what. And they also had the Dumbarton Oaks Conference, which is the forerunner of how the United Nations came to be created. All of this high-level diplomatic activity was taking place between these three powers to determine what the war and the world was going to look like at the end of it. Well, how about ordinary Americans? How about those people that joined up? Many of them had never been more than 50 miles from home before, and now they found themselves parts of great armies thousands of miles from home in places they had never even heard of or could find on a map. The fighting was very different in the Pacific compared to what it was in, in the Atlantic theater. In the German theater, you could expect that you would be fighting occasionally, or for many parts of the service, you never saw any actual action at all. You were part of the support crews. So let's give a shout out at this point during Black History Month to the Red Ball Express. The Red Ball Express was a group of African-American transport units. They drove trucks from France from the ports in France all the way across occupied France and liberated France to the front lines where they kept gasoline and artillery shells and tank parts and food and everything that army needed to succeed was on these trucks day after day after day after day. 24-7, thousands of these trucks driven by dedicated African-American soldiers, patriotic Americans, who made sure that other soldiers at the front, some black, some white, had what they needed to fight against the Germans and ultimately win. You hear about the generals, you hear about the decorated war heroes, 
But there's all these people behind the scenes who made it possible, and that includes the soldiers of the Red Ball Express. Well, as the war was winding down in 1944 and 45, and we could see the end coming, this is also the same time period where atomic weapons are developed for the first time. And think about the power of the government in this situation, where the federal government could just show up in central Washington state, say, everybody who lives in the town of Hanford, pack your stuff and get out, we're moving you, and we're going to appropriate all of this land, tens of thousands of acres, for the use of the government, don't ask any questions, shut up. <laughs> and can you imagine the government doing that today, how, many, how much people would freak out, and people in Hanford are like, well, I guess it's for the war, let's go, and they pack up their stuff and move to where Hanford, Washington is today, and the Hanford Nuclear Reservation is born. They bring in 30,000 workers okay, to construct the world's first ever nuclear reactor. And most of those workers had no idea what they were actually building. They were just responsible for their own little part of it. But the Tri-Cities in Washington State was really born with this Manhattan Project to create a nuclear reactor. In 1945, they enrich enough uranium to build themselves a test bomb. And that test bomb was exploded in Trinity in the desert, down is what's, what's now the White Sands Missile Test Range, in south-central New Mexico, way away from everything, and successfully worked. It was only three weeks later that we assembled two more bombs, transported them to the Pacific, and then used them against Japan to end the war. A Herculean effort, $2 billion later, that had taken three years but ushered the world into the nuclear age and all the problems that were associated with that. We'll talk a little bit more about that fantastic project in the next podcast. Thank you for listening.